Welcome back to another week of the Base Training Podcast. I'm here as always with Stefan, Will and myself, um, Lee. <laughs> this week we're going to be talking and carrying on the theme of uh, tactical athletes. We're going to be talking about tier one tactical athletes and clients um, and those people that fit into that bracket. Um, previously we've talked about tier two and three. Um, and today we're going to be doing it slightly differently. We're going to talk a little bit about the testing and definition and testing standards and our markers for performance and so on. Um, and we're also going to do a case study of a um, client of ours that is going and preparing for UK Special Forces selection. So we won't reveal their name or any uh, details about who they are um, for security reasons. But yeah, a, a real life case study for you guys. First of all, though, we'll quickly introduce ourselves. Um, my name is Lee Carter. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn, although I don't really use LinkedIn or Facebook that much anymore. <laughs> so Instagram, mainly Lee Carter UK, but on all three platforms. You can email me as well at lee at base.training. Um, Stefan, where can everyone find you? Uh, so you can find me on Instagram. It's at coach underscore Stefan underscore Winder. Uh, LinkedIn, Stefan Winder MSC. Facebook, Stefan Winder Strength and Movement Coach, and you can email me, Stefan, at base.training. Excellent. And William? Um, Instagram is coach underscore Will underscore Strathdee. I'm on LinkedIn, just Will Strathdee. Facebook, Will Strathdee Health and Fitness Coach, and email address is will at base.training. Excellent. And you can find more information about Base Training Tactical on the Instagram page, Base Training Tactical. Uh, and on on our website, we have a separate page for um, those that are interested in the tactical athlete lifestyle and training approaches and maybe need some help preparing for an arduous physical military style course. Um, yeah, especially UK Special Forces. The individualised programme is really the best way to help you achieve that goal. So the definition, as we always like to start with, of... UK Special Forces Tier 1 Athletes. What are they, Stefan? <laughs> Stefan's our definition man. Uh, so these are the sexy movie star, military-style people that you see. Um, anyone who watches TV is a fan of SAS Who Dares Wins. It's these kind of guys. So top-tier, military, uber-fit, uber-strong uh, um, expert <laughs> <laughs> these are the best that society for for military purpose anyway the best that society can produce and in the day are they they are the top percenters the 0.01 percenters the elite um, that get past these uh, selection processes and <clears throat> the UK special forces selection processes are arguably the tough one of the toughest in the world if not the toughest selection process um, a lot of other countries special forces are modeled on british special forces and and their selection process are also modeled on british selection processes so they really do set the standard um, going forwards so they include people like the sas the special air service the sbs the special boat service and the srr which is the special reconnaissance regiment which a lot of people don't actually know about um, and you could also, if you're looking towards like the American military, everyone would have heard of the Navy SEALs, um, Delta, all that sort of thing. 
um, they fit into that bracket as well, um, although their selections processes are different. We're going to be focusing on the UK Special Forces um, selection processes and uh, athletes today though. Um, we've also done a previous podcast with guys from Stoke Conditioning and talked about some of this stuff already. So if you haven't heard that, go and listen back to that. Uh, it's called SAS Part S. How to Pass SS Selection Part 1 and 2, I think it is. Um, so yeah, hit those up as well. So the definition, the testing standards then. What do you guys know about the testing standards? I know that you have actually worked with a couple of people going for the reserve just forces. Yeah. So you actually have a lot of experience with some of the testing standards and things. And obviously apply and test to these people. So why don't you lead us off with the testing standards? <laughs> Smooth. Smooth move, Will. Smooth move. Okay, then I will. So well, for the regular selection process um, for the UK Special Forces, it starts off with the basic military fitness assessments. Um, they've changed recently. Um, however, I believe that the the SF are still using the older variations. I'm not 100% sure that. Um, so for most, it's a mile and a half with a mile and a half run, unburdened, unloaded with um, two minutes of push-ups, two minutes of sit-ups. Um, and you're looking for like a 9.30 or below on the run and around the 80 mark for both push-ups and sit-ups in a two-minute period. Um, however, the, the new versions are a 2K run in sub 7.30ish, I think. Um, and you've got things like farmer's carries with some jerry cans, um, some repeated lifts with a, a load from the floor onto, I think it's a six foot or five foot um, platform, signifying the, the back of a, um, a lorry, back of a truck. So they're the basic, some, some of the basic standards. We've also got the basic uh, load carrying standards, which have the, uh, the eight mile, which is a CFT, to under two hours, carry, which is carrying 20 kilos-ish. Um, it differs for different cores. But the basic military standards apply to this to start off with. But then going for UK Special Forces, um, in most cases, they're drawn from the Royal Marines and the Parachute Regiment. Um, they make up a large percentage of the... Uh, special Forces community. However, they are drawn from the infantry regiments and wider corps of the army um, and navy and air force as well. So, <clears throat> it starts off with what's known as the briefing course, and um, again, some of it's held secret, so I don't know some of the details. Um, but most it includes um, some weighted runs, uh, some map reading, orienteering style tests, um, some uh, swimming tests, and kind of an overnight, uh, I suppose it's a bit of a physical resiliency test with a, uh, a loaded um, insertion into the, into the night out, and then a loaded exfiltration on the way out, which is done with timed and specific weights, and uh, <coughs> best efforts kind of pass or fail thing. Then you graded at the end of it. And then it moves into the actual selection phase, which is four phases, I think. Um, first phase is hills phase, which is long distance or increasingly long distances with increasingly heavier weights whilst navigating across uh, Beckham Beacons. Um, the second phase is done in the jungle. Again, not that much is known about that. This is more um, 
military tactics and uh, micro navigation and how to work with t working together as teams and things, but extremely physically demanding because of the environment. The next phase is um, about <coughs> counter terrorist training, and you do all your special forces kind of skills work here. Um, if you get to the end of this, you're kind of badged as a member of the SAS or SBS, your respective um, regiments. And then the last phase is the survival, escape and resistance to interrogation phase, which again, you would have seen, or those that have watched SAS, who dares wins, they do a form of this where they set them off on the loose, they then chase them for a day, couple of days, um, and then they capture them and do um, a few hours of interrogation. On the TV show, it's a short, condensed version, on the actual um, selection process, that part of it is um, three week, is a week long, seven or eight days, um, but that's part of a four-week phase. So um, it's quite arduous, to say the least. Um, however, for most of our clients, oh, sorry, the SBS then go on to do a swimmer canoeist uh, course where they do a lot of open water swimming, scuba diving, canoeing and stuff like that. Um, However, for a lot of our clients, our aim is to really prepare them for the um, the hills phase, is to get through that because that's the that's the first barrier. We don't really have much control over what happens next to them. Um, we can prepare them as best as possible and keep an eye on longevity for sure. Um, but really, most people come to us needing help for the aptitude phase and the um, individualized phase. Oh, sorry, the hills phase. The reserves selection is slightly different in that it doesn't include a trip to the jungle. It includes a spaced out version of that, but it's done in the UK somewhere. I think it's in Scotland. Um, they also have a slightly different, um, what's the, it's called SOPTAC, special operations, like tact weapons tactics um, <coughs> phase. Again, slightly condensed spread out over the weekends because it's for reserves and their hills phase is also done over two over the full course but they only do two or three weeks of it if i remember right um, and their testing standards are slightly reduced so on the it's at like a 4k if they've got 20 20 kilometers to do it's like a 4k an hour um, pace for the regulars 3k an hour for the reserves but that sometimes changes the rest of it is really kept quite secret. <laughs> However, the, we know the physical demands for someone that's um, that's successful, um, what the physical attributes, the physical, not the psychological attributes um, that are required to pass um, an arduous course like this. Um, so if you're thinking of going for it and you thought, oh, bloody hell, that sounds like a lot, then you might want <laughs> to consider taking on a coach or reconsider your... Um, choice <laughs> your choice of career um, yeah is that any different to what you guys have heard no I mean out of three of us I think you're the most well versed in um, <laughs> special forces so you know far more than we do but yeah I haven't heard any different I mean I'm, I'm a fan of the show I actually watch it quite a lot and I'm quite a fan of military in general so um, I access what I can and pretty much everything you've just summarised there is all you can really access without having the um, confidentiality agreements or whatever it is to be able to access further information. So, um, no, I haven't heard anything different myself. 
yeah, all the information I put forward there is you can find on Google. Right, there's nothing that I said there that's um, not out there in the in the inter inter interwebs. So um, because if you know all the information, it becomes too easy. And like, for it to be the most challenging selection process in the world, you have to have people going into it not fully knowing what to expect. Yeah, that becomes more difficult at that point. I think it's, it works both ways. It depends who you are, doesn't it? So I know for some of the clients I'm working with, they like having being prepared. They like having the information. Um, but one of them, again, the guy that we're going to do the case study on, um, he's like, yeah, it doesn't really bother me. Like, I'll, I'll just as long as he's got the physical capability to pass the basic tests, he's like, yeah, I'll just take whatever comes to me. Um, so for some people, and for the people I've spoken to who have passed, um, work with who have passed, some of them have loved being really well prepared, and some of them are just like, yeah, I just kind of tipped up. Um, I trained for it, obviously, but I just kind of tipped up on the day. I didn't really have a clue what was going on, whereas you've got all these guys that knew exactly where they were going, what they were doing. He's like, I just kind of relied on my skills and hope for the best. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, <laughs> but there has to, I think there has to be an element of secrecy around it. Um, because it is it's a secret organisation so um, <laughs> uh, what goes on exactly like only people that will have done the course will ever know that so um, and those that have passed it most of them won't tell anyway um, partly because they're legally bound so um, yeah so the testing standards we however have got some of our own testing markers um, did you want to talk one, Stefan? Do you want to talk us through some of those? You got those up? Uh, yeah, I can do. Um, so, as you mentioned, there's quite a high variety of skills, drills, and physical attributes that they will have to achieve in order to be successful in their testing phase, um, during each of those phases of selection. Uh, so, one of the ones you mentioned was the walking. They'll have to be doing loaded marches for a prolonged period of time. Um, so some of the tests and standards that we have that we look at is a 12 mile ruck. So a 12 mile loaded walk at 25 kilos. And we're looking to do that in sub two hours, 15 minutes. Um, it's a cyclical aerobic activity. So it just you just got to keep going and going and going, not really stopping for much apart from maybe the odd sip of water and just to check your bearings, check your compass, because this is going to be replicated in that first phase of training, the hills phase, which, as you mentioned, is going to be potentially the most important one that we got preparing for, because after that, they're in the system and we can't really control anything else. But this is the one we can control, it's that first phase. So having them prepared for that phase as best as possible and trying to achieve this like physical marker of fitness is a really good way of predicting their performance on the day. Well, <laughs> I'd say on the day, but it's on the week. <laughs> Over the course of four weeks, yeah. What would you say, like, instead of, uh, in terms of just the um, re the physiological requirements, What where would you place, what would you say are most important? Not necessarily uh, the times that people think we've got, but what would you say are the most important physiological um, performance indicators. That makes, does that make sense? Is that the right term I'm looking for? So, so like the physiological attributes? That's or... the one. That's the one yeah. I'm looking for. Good save. <laughs> you got there. You got there. Um, 
So for, for these guys, it would be a massive gas tank, like huge aerobic endurance capabilities, massive uh, pipes trophy of that left end of the wall that we hear about GTSE PE. This is literally to that. And these guys are essentially in So we need to treat them as such. Um, so aerobic endurance is massive. Um, respiratory capacity, so like huge tidal volume is going to be important here. Um, carbon dioxide tolerance is going to be incredibly important as well. Um, and that's going to pay dividends with their swimming as well, because as you mentioned, especially if they're going into the SBS, the Special Boat Service, uh, and they're going to do their swim with canoeist, um, having those respiratory volumes is going to be very, very important for them because they may need to hold their breath for prolonged periods of time while submerged. Um, strength endurance, the ability to continue to exert strength on a repeatability basis, like keep going and going and going, not stopping is going to be incredibly important. Um, Upper body strength, um, these guys carry enormous loads for long periods of time, so they need to have uh, like strong shoulder girdles to be able to carry that load on two straps across their shoulders in a backpack. Um, also, absolute strength, they need to be able to lift a sheer load sometimes, but they also need to lift that for prolonged periods of time, but they need to be strong enough to actually pick that thing up in the first place. So um, it's kind of everything we've talked about in all of our previous ones on tier two and tier three, this is just the next level up. So rather than looking at longevity within these elements, we're looking at the performance aspect of these elements. So uh, trying to peak each of those physical attributes rather than trying to get them to a good standard and maintain, is trying to get them to peak and maintain. Uh, so we're clo more closely representing elite sport here rather than uh, longevity and health, I would say. Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because we, because the course is so long, it's like six months long. You need to, you need to have an eye on longevity. There has to be an eye on longevity, because if we peak for, like, how do you peak for a, a four week or six month process? You can't, can you? So it's like you said, we've got to try and have an eye on their maintenance of these attributes as much as possible, um, and that's why I think. Um, if you're considering, we I've talked about in the last one, but if you're considering going for these processes, um, like you need to give a long enough window to allow for the adaptions to occur and um, like really get set in stone. Because you can develop uh, these attributes, but you can they can disappear pretty quickly. Whereas if you develop them so that they, they stay um, and build the base... <laughs> Uh, that is required and uh, allow for these long-term physiological adaptions to take place then you'll be in a much better position like and we're looking at sort of 18 months two years plus it should be if you're considering these one of these uh, um, challenges and these uh, arduous courses it's interesting though what you said about um, the upper body <laughs> uh, one of the reasons that a lot of people will fail like, and i think the stat is about 60 to 70 percent of people of a of a 200 people 200 person course on the first day will fail the first phase they won't make it through the first phase and from my experience that's been due to um obviously there's a lot that comes down to it um it's not just uh, the physiological factors 
Um, but a lot of it is due just to the breakdown and of the upper body and not being able to put a heavy load on their back and carry it because it just it does get to a point where it just gets painful, <laughs> very very painful, um, and then it it becomes a a mental strength test of can you endure that level of pain. Um, however, I think our approach is that if we can get you strong enough and enduring enough to to not have to deal with that you won't have to go through the psychological torment right? and it will be a real a the perceived effort that has to be put out will be less um, it won't be as much of a grind um, and this is one of the reasons why the selection process has the reputation it has is because people aren't preparing themselves well enough physiologically first um, which feeds into the mindset um, and they'll come off it and say yeah physiologically it was really really hard um, but you gave up mentally you it's only ever you only other than injuries it's only ever really your your mind that's going to give up isn't it that's what's going to pull you out um, so yeah and performance versus health isn't it like you said, it's taking it to the next level. We've moved on from health maintenance now. Um, we're now in the realms of performance, balancing on a knife edge, um, risking um, the negative effects of performance and elite performance, um, of hormone dysfunction, increased risk of injuries and the musculoskeletal injuries and psychological injuries and um, digestive issues and <laughs> loads of stuff can go wrong at this point um, which again is part of the test because they're looking for the most enduring people Will what in terms of strength endurance what sort of um, things are you going to be looking at for like markers of tests and stuff like that so for strength endurance, um, the tests that we include quite often are lower body strength endurance tests. There's obviously a lot of walking involved, a lot of hills. If you're walking up a hill, you're kind of doing a box step up. And if you're doing that for 12 hours a day, um, if you don't have the ability to produce that force over and over again, you're going to struggle uh, to keep the pace and obviously um, stay within the realms of what they see as acceptable. Uh, so we've got our dumb foot, dumb foot, dumbbell <laughs> rear foot, <laughs> split squat. I don't know what a dumb foot is. Uh, we're looking for eight rep max per leg. Um, uh, whilst performing that, we're looking for at least a third of your body weight per hand. Um, so that's a significant load. If you're a 100 kilo person, that's the 60 kilo total. Eight rep max rear elevated split squat. Uh, back squat, 50 reps, one and a half of your body weight. And that is for time so how fast can you perform those 50 reps ideally uh, an athlete who's going to go for selection could do that unbroken um, and this should be in less than 15 minutes uh, also for the back squat we can do unbroken as many reps as possible 100 kilos um, the standard that we spoke about before Lee was about 50 um, but <laughs> Um, so the standard for unbroken back squat um, 
as many reps as possible at 100. Could be a minimum of 50, um, but probably pushing on towards uh, 55 to 60 reps would be kind of top top tier there. Yeah. I think it's important to mention that it's like these numbers that we're putting out there are for people that are ready to go um, and, and are passing. For us to be yes, confident. The, for people that are put like passing selection, if you're not hitting these numbers and you're about to partake in selection, you probably will struggle. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's, it's such a hard one to say because you also get the guys that are, uh, the guys and girls that are like, nowhere near some of these numbers never touched a barbell that also pass exactly yeah so. i think as a before you go into having a marker that just you've hit these certain standards that you know will hold you in good stead for selection uh, and you're talking about numbers for like aerobic capacity anaerobic capacity muscular absolute strength strength endurance if you can hit these markers of performance before you go in you can have good trust in yourself that you will be okay you don't have to kind of rely every day on that kind of mental fortitude to think, oh, I have to keep going. You know your body's capable of performing at that intensity. Um, that's why the tests are so important. Yeah. Yeah, there's, uh, like I said, the, the, I'm going to repeat it, the numbers that we're going to talk about are, um, and we won't go through all of them because people just get bored. <laughs> um, they are really the standards that we would like to see for someone that is a, uh, um, that's experienced in lifting weights obviously for someone that's never done a back squat before we're probably not going to put them through a back squat test um, of uh, 1.5 times your body weight for 50 reps it's just not going to happen because it's a safety issue um, but we will use a more condensed version of the test we have and these are just indicators they don't mean you're going to pass um, but <clears throat> this is what we've seen as a successful standard um, so it's important to, um, to what's the word, to put that out there. Um, in terms of absolute strength, this is where we're looking, like Stefan said, is we've got to be able to lift the weight first. Like if you can't pick up 40 kilos off the floor, you're going to struggle putting your Bergen on. It's, <laughs> it's that simple. Um, and let alone carrying it for X amount of time. Um, the benefits of having a higher level of absolute strength is just, Again, like I said earlier, the physiological adaptions, increased tendon strength, increased bone density, um, increased ligamental strength, um, all the, a better hormone function, all these sort of things are going to, or better motor output for, in general, all these things are going to lean towards um, better performance. Um, and if you can hit these standards, it means that you've got the physiological or you've had the physiological adaptions occur to put you in a better position so that you don't get injured and have to come off the course on the fourth, on the last day and you get injured on the last day. That, that would just suck. Um, you'd have to go through it all again. <laughs> um, so we make trying to make sure that this is our this is where our eye on longevity is, is, is that if you can hit these numbers roughly, that the physiological adaptions have occurred. You've got tendon strength that can take um, doing 500K over at Brecon Beacons with increasing load. In the space of four weeks, um, and doing a a long, like a twenty-hour ruck with thirty kilos on your back non-stop, like this, this is these are the markers that are gonna um, indicate whether you're set up for success, and that's I think that's the difference, isn't it? 
Is it just like the you mean like the briefing course that they do prior to the start of selection? Like that, they're their test. You have to hit those numbers to be able to be included in the rest of the process. Yeah. And and for the, the people in control of the selection process, just because you hit those numbers doesn't mean you're going to pass. At the same time, because you've hit those numbers, they know that you're going to you're at a level that is acceptable for them to enter you on the course. It's not a given just because you can hit certain numbers. Yeah, it's more. It's and, like and that's that's what our tests are like. Our tests are the same sort of thing. Yeah. Like if you can hit these numbers, doesn't mean you're going to pass. Yeah. At the same time, if you hit these numbers like consistently, like you're most likely going to be okay. Yeah. There's a higher chance you will succeed. Yeah, for sure. Like for for example, some of the um, we won't go for all of them. Some of the absolute strength markers that we've got is like a weight for upper body weighted strict pull up. We're looking for a minimum of a third of your body weight for one rep. Um, ideally, we're looking for a bit more than that. Um, we're probably looking up towards half body weight for one rep. Um, we're looking for a <coughs> back squat of one and a half times your body weight minimum. Um, again, we then have the strength endurance test, which is one and a half body weight for 50 reps. So we're looking for like looking for that absolute strength marker as well be, before being eligible to work on strength well not to work on strength endurance but to test strength endurance um, then we've got things like your uh, close grip bench press we're looking for like 1.25 times body weight for one rep um, the one I think is probably most or the two I think that are most relevant to this uh, or the three that I think most relevant are the trap bar deadlift the front squat and the close grip bench press they're probably the most relevant to this um, community because uh, most people have bench pressed before, a trap bar deadlift is an extremely athletic lift, if that's the right word. And the front squat is placing a demand on the body that really requires some strong um, midline and upper body strength and uh, stability, you know, like structural stability. Because um, if you can't even hold a bar with 85% on your of your body weight or, or your of your back squat on or in the front rack position then again whether that's a bodybuilder style or not it's you're going to find it tough to carry a 40 kilo bergen or 35 kilo bergen on your back for extended periods of time um, again with the caveat that <laughs> these are just markers it doesn't necessarily mean that people haven't passed or people hundreds of people have passed this with never touching a barbell before so um the markers are, but our markers are there for success. It means we don't have to spend hours and hours and hours with a burger on your back, like rucking or tabbing, whatever you want to call it. Um, we can get the same results, if not better results, um, and get you through it in a better manner and, set, and make it easier for you so that you can um, shine where, it, where you need to instead of just dying and struggling your whole way through, um, potentially injuring yourself for the long term. Um, yeah, so in terms of a case study, we have got a, a new client. Um, we'll talk, talk through some details about this client. They're a male. Um, they have been training for a considerable period of time. They're in their mid-30s. Um, they've been training for a considerable period of time now um, for most of their life. They've played some high-level rugby. Um, done a lot of swimming and played water polo. Um, they've had extensive experience in the gym 
um, training with barbells, uh, lifting, powerlifting, that sort of stuff. Um, but they've also got a the negative. They've had the negative effects of that. Um, they picked up a ton of injuries uh, in the past, and as we know from some of our other podcasts, this stuff adds up into a load, um, like a, a, a it's a load that your body carries with it. Um, you, once you recover in quote marks from an injury, like that scar, whether it's left of, uh, an actual, like if you've had surgery, it's left an actual scar. Um, that scar stays there and it, it creates a new load on the body um, for your body to handle. And sometimes it recovers, um, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and the, some of the pains you have um, might be caused by some of your previous um, injuries and niggles and things like that that you won't think has an effect um, 20, 30 years ago it can still have an effect uh, if not longer so this guy's got what is that 10 I'm looking at the list he's had uh, rotator cuff tears knee injuries ligament tears and repairs shoulder repairs um, like probably partially herniated discs in the back um, broken feet, broken collarbones, <laughs> uh, used to box a lot, so probably mild concussions in there, broken wrists, and so on. Um, and this person comes to us with a um, kind of a, a caveat as such, in that they've got around six months to prepare now. And the reason they've come to us is because they feel like they, they're overtraining and have been for the past 12 or so months. A couple of their lifestyle uh, things is that they're re- they're hardly sleeping. Um, they're getting about four, maybe between four and six hours of sleep a night, um, and they're they're surviving on 15, 20 cups of coffee a day. So in the, we talked a little bit off air about this before we started, and we'll so this person's in a, a vicious cycle where they can't sleep enough because of the caffeine, and they can't um, stay awake without the caffeine. So uh, during the day to perform their on their job role so we're in a challenging position because this uh, person wants to do really well on the attitude phase which is in uh, uh, five or six months time um, and then the selection phase which is just after that so for this guy where would you guys start <laughs> I love it. it just started with a giggle that's where start. I'd start outside the gym um with the sleep and the caffeine um but because obviously you you're the one that spoke to me is it a case that they're definitely over training or is it just a case that they're under recovering yeah this this is what i proposed um it's it's clear that it's probably both a mixture of both um i wouldn't be surprised if they were able to get eight or nine hours sleep a night that the load that they're um doing is would be okay. I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case because they're doing it as it is and they can do it for a reasonable period of time and then they they fall off a cliff and it, like all these the back pains and things happen, these injuries come back um, and then they're out for a week or two and they can't train as hard and then they go back into it, back into the level they were. So I'd be surprised if, um, obviously we haven't done an assessment yet, that's where we're going to start, after the assessment, um, the the likely deload because I've told them to deload for a, couple, for a week completely um, uh, and the likely deload that will happen that 
if we can improve their sleep, that they'll they'll recover better and we can actually get them back to that um, level of volume that they're currently doing um, and have been doing for the past 12 months and feeling overtrained for the past 12 months. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. So, because like, like, obviously, without knowing whether they're overtraining or just under recovering, um, but I, I would start outside the gym because it's clear that they're not getting enough recovery. Um, the fact they're only sleeping for maybe four hours a night. Um, so that's where I'd start increasing the amount of time they sleep for, and alongside that, you'd have to somehow adjust the amount of coffee that they are uh, are drinking um, to kind of help relieve that cycle a little bit. Because obviously, if they start to recover more, the degree at which they are overtrained decreases because the amount of uh, load on the body that it can recover from increases because you're getting more time to recover. Um, so I would start there and see how they start to feel once they start to sleep more and decrease their amount of caffeine. Because the notes that you've got here about their nutrition, like that, that seems like well-rounded considering what they're doing. Um, and obviously once they start to sleep more and um, recover hopefully better, then you can see if the training is still too much and you can adjust that as well. But I would initially start outside the gym because that's where the biggest problem is. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, if we if you can get that sleep, like you said, sorry, if you can get that sleep better um, and probably improve their hydration, a lot of the stuff that they're suffering with will probably return back to normal because if the person is, is also struggling with some hormonal dysfunction um, with I think I think it's low testosterone levels I can't quite remember um, and that like it, I would, wouldn't be surprised if they're just addicted to they are addicted to caffeine this is this isn't a um, a new thing for this person it's been going on for years um, they're addicted to caffeine they're running on cortisol um, running on adrenaline that's what's keeping them going and they're becoming their hormonal system is becoming fatigued and that's starting to show up in blood panels and it's also starting to show up in the physiological markers of that joint aching from like just a highly acidic environment um niggling muscular issues it's the it's body's way of just or brain's way of saying like stop give me a chance to recover what about you Stefan? where would you start <laughs> I would probably get them to seriously evaluate whether or not this is a right choice for them at this point in their life. Mm. Um, five months out, um, I think you said they're 37. Yeah. All these pre-existing injuries, currently overtraining, under-recovering, I would seriously question if this is the right lifestyle for that person. Yeah. Um, because as we, as we said, it's not just the, the physical stuff, it's the psychological stuff as well. Um, and if they know that they've got these pre-existing injuries and they start to flare up because they're under-recovering, um, that would play on your mind. And as soon as that training starts to get hard and they keep ramping, because it, it only gets harder as you go through, if they, if they start and they find it tough, psychologically, they're just going to be wiped and they're just going to be like, how much more do I need to give to actually pass this course? So um, that's probably where I would start, to be honest. Yeah. Um, it has to, doesn't it? It has to start with that question. Um, yeah. And it did for me uh, with this person. Um, I, I put it to them, I was like, if they continue in this manner and they don't um, drop back and they don't improve sleep and things, is that they might pass the first phase, they might pass the second phase, but as that time goes on, like it's just going to get harder and harder. And it, it's not necessarily the 
there's going to be some short-term consequences that they might that they won't pass the course but it's the potential long-term implications is they're just at risk of injuries psychological issues due to this the challenge that's going to be placed upon them um, so yeah I think you're, you're absolutely spot on those those tough questions need to be asked yeah absolutely um, and then based on the outcome of that conversation if they they said like this is really something they want to do and they could justify it to you um, then yeah I'd agree with Will I think sleeping out uh, sorting out the sleep is paramount um, although interestingly um there is a lot of sleep deprivation on selection, so this could actually work out in their favour. <laughs> so if they're used to functioning on minimal sleep and functioning on cortisol, that could actually pay, like, be good for them in the short term, but then looking at long-term impact and consequences of that, you know, like, again, you've got to bring into question, is this really what you want to do? Because the, And you have to highlight what those long-term possible consequences are. Um, because they've already got GI tract problems um, and if that continues like that's gone on for what the last 12 months if they then continue this for another 5 months to their selection course then another year or so to do the selection stuff that's that's a big problem and that's going to really take years of their life because their body is going to be struggling to cope with that kind of demand so yeah, I just think being earnest with this person is is definitely the way to go. But yeah, until you have that conversation, it's hard to kind of know what would be best thing to prioritise for them. Yeah. I think, and we've we've had that conversation. They are like adamant that they want to do this course. Um, it's kind of their last hurrah as such, um, because of the age, like their, their time is running out. Um, so again, it's not it's not really for us to decide their goals but it is for us to we have a, a duty of responsibility to say that these are the consequences um, if we go forward and if we go forward to put you at the best possible chance of succeeding these this is what we have to do and this is what we might have to sacrifice in order to gain slightly later on um, and for this client they're going to have to sacrifice some coffee and they love they love a coffee <laughs> apparently so they're going to have to sacrifice that um, and get, the way we get our point across that is through, like I said, just being honest right from the upfront point. Um, so in terms of, let's say we've done it, we've done the, um, they, 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 this person wants to go on, we're cracking on with um, program design and so on and lifestyle design. Um, we talked a little bit about improving their sleep, which we know is a massive, massive um, contributing factor to their potential success or failure um, if they're not sleeping and not recovering um, for those that are listening that's where you do your recovery you don't get stronger in the gym you get stronger when you're asleep um, you get fitter when you're asleep that's when you recover from it that's when your brain changes that's when your muscles change it's when your skeletal system changes and everything adapts um, so if you're the less sleep you get the less time you'll live prove that <laughs> and the less adaption you will see from your training so you could be putting in 20 hours a week in training and you might only see the benefit of five because you're you're sleeping 75 percent 75 percent less than you need to um obviously that's not a direct correlation that's just a, a random number but you can kind of get the point how important sleep is um 
so what for there's there's going to be a lot of people because that's kind of culture these days isn't it it's um self-medicated with caffeine um in not just in the special forces world but in just normal life people are doing it just to go to, just to get to work every day um so what sort of stuff would you put in place for this client um and i'll kind of tell you if that rings true with what i've already put in place for him um to to improve their sleep um there's loads of stuff that you can start with but you just got to start with the small things um get them consistent with it and then just keep building on those little things over time to make the bigger lasting changes um so like for instance putting their phone away at least 30 minutes before bed like reducing all blue light in the room turning off any electric device sorry electric electronic devices um at least 30 minutes before bed um ensuring their room is is nice and dark like cave-like very primal um potentially make it a bit colder as well i mean i like to sleep with the window open for that reason uh, if i'm cold i snuggle a bit more in bed and i get to sleep a little bit quicker um that's that's something that's really helped me i've always struggled with my sleep so for me like trying to make it as primal uh, and black getting it as dark as possible as cool as possible and removing blue light has, has really helped me build up that that bedtime routine um but then you also need to have a consistent wake-up routine as well so same thing like waking up at the same time every day going to bed at the same time every day and trying to get into that consistent routine trying to auto regulate almost your body's patterns um try and get it to respond to daylight so when daylight does come in your room try getting up get your circadian rhythm in in check um and all those all those things but that's a lot of information so i'll probably just start with one or two of those things get them consistent with it for two to three weeks and then you add yeah Yeah, i went after the uh the caffeine so this person they've been drinking they've been subsisting off caffeine for a long time they're addicted to it um and they're also most likely dehydrated so i said to this person i've used this before and it worked quite well uh, is every time they have a cup of coffee they all they've got to do is drink the same size mug full of water before they drink the coffee because one of the reasons that they're going after that drink is because they they obviously they want a bit of a pick me up. But it's also because they're probably feeling thirsty. They want something wet in their mouth um, that, that they can uh, ingest to make them feel less thirsty. So if we can get take care of the hydration component first and then give them the pick me up, they're less likely to drink all of the coffee. So over time over the next couple of weeks, hopefully, they'll start to reduce the amount of coffee they're taking in because they're feeling less thirsty. Having a knock-on effect later on that they're taking in less caffeine, um, and less caffeine means they might be able to sleep a little bit better. Um, that's kind of, well, that was exactly the same approach that um, you described, Stefan. Um, one thing at a time. <laughs> I suppose they've got enough on their plate uh, worrying about this selection process, let alone having to worry about trying to give up an addiction. <laughs> Uh, and it's it's not necessarily where we want to go um i or in the short term in the long term yes but in the short term we've got to go okay where are the biggest wins to get this person through this course um after that we can just deal with the consequences we, we that's what we're going to have to do um and we can work on improving their lifestyle later on but for now it's about okay what can we do to get this person ready for this course um, and through the course successfully. Um, so it's not necessarily that I want to um, 
help this person kick this addiction within a couple of weeks because it's not going to happen it's not realistic it's just okay let's make a small change to get a big response in terms of their um training men so where where would you start with their training considering this person has and will you had a little bit of thought on this before um, considering this person was admittedly like been over training for the past 12 months plus um, potentially longer and has a significant injury history and training history where, where would you start um obviously i'd start with some sort of test um but i think you had quite a few numbers of what they've done before yeah let's go let's quickly go through them um so they some basic numbers that they know of um a one mile unweighted run max effort 545 so pretty fast so it's um it's already leaning towards a, a quite aerobically powerful athlete um not necessarily enduring though uh, a one mile weighted best effort was 845 i think this was with 20 kilos um a trap did i talk to these talk through these already yeah, yeah I trap bar deadlift one two forty bench one twenty front squat one thirty and some and burpees max effort in sixty seconds thirty two um, and they've been training um every day pretty much <clears throat> barring some injuries and um work related issues um things like that they've been trying to train every day so yeah where would you start yeah, so like you said, obviously the the numbers he's got for the run. I mean, you can tell me is is a a weighted one mile run three minutes slower than the unweighted. Is that normal? Is that sort of time difference you're expecting there? Three minute difference? Uh, it, there isn't really an, a difference. Oh, it isn't really an average for it that I know of. It's something I've not actually looked into the, the the time differences. But what for me that does incline me to believe about this client is that they are quite aerobically powerful yeah. which for the um briefing course tests is going to be a, it's going to be beneficial because the endurance to an extent isn't the most tested piece there it's aerobic power um, and their aerobic power will most likely cover them for the endurance test on there. However, when they get onto selection, and this is where our conundrum comes in, and we'll talk about it in a second, when they go onto selection, which is potentially uh, less than a month and a half, or two months off post the briefing course, um, it's all about endurance. Now, obviously, they need to be fast, but it's all about being the tractor, not the Ferrari, the freight train, and plodding along at a consistent speed um being resilient not breaking so it leads me to believe that they're quite a powerful athlete um, just in what they've been inclined to go and do in terms of their training as well yeah obviously the southern and he's done no form of like muscular endurance type testing um and there's some uh, so that's probably where i'd start looking at his muscular endurance looking at his aerobic endurance um and what does stand out to me as well is those numbers you mentioned 240 deadlift i think you said yeah. and a 120 bench yeah um i think if you do the math like the balance of those isn't quite right like the ratios isn't quite right there 
Um, so if you were to look into the back squat and the front squat numbers as well, I think the the ratios of his like strength would be out. Um, so we're looking to try and balance it up a bit to get to to a acceptable level of lower body and upper body strength, uh, as well as strength endurance and muscular endurance there. Um, but one of the the main things you have you'd have to work towards is just physical robustness. For someone that's had that many injuries, like, there's a high chance that four weeks of walking about in the hills will flare up a couple of those injuries. Um, so having the the muscular capacity to uh, take the load and the intensity that he's going to experience um, to minimise the chance of those injuries flaring up be really important. So it's a high high degree of muscular endurance work needed with this guy and strength endurance just to, to keep him safe really mm. not necessarily for him to be become fitter but just to keep him safe yeah. what I've found in the past just from experience with not necessarily tactical athletes but with just chronic overtrainers in general is that they tend to be really like have a really high level of muscular endurance but anything outside of that as soon as you add some load onto it or you are they, they tend to have they tend to be really muscular enduring but not very good at like endurance tests um, they aren't very strong they aren't very powerful they're actually kind of the bottom rung of um, of kind of elite performance if, they, if they're moving in trying to move into that realm um, and chronic overtrainers tend to actually do they get, tend to get worse at these numbers and they, don't, they just don't go anywhere despite how much they train um, and this is how I would describe this person is they're a chronic overtrainer they've got an extremely high level of muscular endurance um, better than most in most cases um, but potentially they're, where they're going to get let down is in um, elements of uh, strength endurance and absolute strength tests um, in some aspects and that, that's, that's the hole that an injury might creep in through and that might be the window of opportunity that an injury might take um, uh, and that's kind of where my thinking is um, would you guys agree with that? Yeah, because you mentioned that he's got some experience like, like military testing and things before, so he's not completely unaware of what it's probably going to feel like. But I think that if you can stop his injuries reoccurring or stop him getting injured, like there's a high chance he's going to be okay. Because the biggest risk for him is like not being able to finish because of his injury or lack of ability around something. Yeah. It's not going to be, oh, I'm not fit enough. It's, oh, my knee bothered me. I couldn't complete the pace because my knee was hurting. Mm. So like, it's keeping him safe from injury just to give him the best possible chance. Yeah. he's. I, I would say, based on what I know about this person, in a um, not necessarily a back-to-back set of tests, on paper they're fit enough. If you would just look at their numbers, yeah, some numbers might be a bit out of whack, but on paper that you would go, okay, this person's probably good enough to pass it. What is the problem? Is they're just not healthy, and then the body, most likely, is uh, as it is now, isn't going to be able to cope with the level of um, intensity and volume that they're going to be put under, the stress they're going to be put under, because if they can't do it in training, they're not going to be able to do it in the test. And their, their, their mindset is at the moment in their own training, because they know enough about exercise to know what to, how to do it, 
but not necessarily how to order it appropriately and optimally. And they just end up doing everything all the time. <laughs> like this person said that they might go in and do a strength session in a gym and it'll take them four or five hours and they're like, okay, that's not a strength session anymore. Um, it's endurance. <laughs> like again, it probably falls into mus back in down into muscular endurance. Um, so their numbers never actually go anywhere. They never actually have any room for improvement. Um, but yeah, on paper they're probably fit enough, but actually they're just not healthy enough. Like you said, they're just they're not going to survive back to back tests for four, for six months. Um, that might be a physiological comp- uh, physiological component brought out as a, a psychological weakness or vice versa. And they might have a psychological weakness as brought out as a mental, uh, a physiological um, problem, like an injury. Um, so, what their approach has been previously is do everything like a test all of the time to train for a test. And we just we know like you don't see Usain Bolt constantly running hundred meter max efforts. It just doesn't happen. Um, but yet, when <laughs> I, I understand the mentality. I think it's nerves kicks into it. I've got to do more to be better. I've got to do more. It makes kind of logical sense. Um, but when you actually step back and go, okay, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, I think that there's there's a lot of gaps in this person's performance, but not in their health. And that's where the, the problems will kick in. Not necessarily their physical fitness and their capability to carry... 30 kilos over 20k in five hours um, they can do it but can they do it day in day out day in day out <laughs> so Ooh. you guys got, guys got any thoughts on that no <laughs> no cheers <laughs> you're helpful <laughs> but, 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 like not only this guy but I think when we were speaking about it before like the test I think it's like I think you have to try and get their testing standard and how like their ability they need to be able to pass the test almost has to become their training level. So like they can perform it, it's still tough for them to do, but it's not going to finish them off. It's not going to write them off, and they can then go back in and do the same thing the next day. Yeah. So like the the testing intensity and volume has to become almost like a training testing volume for them so they can they know they know they can recover from it they can do it again it's still it's still going to be tough or else they won't be able to get better as they go through they'll detrain but it's not going to be like a shock to their system once they do day one they're not going to be written off for the next fucking 27 days yeah um, so i think one of the biggest things that only for this guy but for everyone looking to go through it is you have to give yourself enough time to adapt so that that standard becomes like a, a training standard for you. Yeah. You have to train into it, don't you? That's yeah. what I think that's where the, the problem occurs is people jump straight in at the deep end um, and don't train into it. And for the first couple of weeks, yeah, they might adapt. For usually a four-week, four or five-week period, yeah, they might adapt and they feel great. But after that, you can't maintain that level because you're testing. Um, you force a peak you can't maintain that peak consistently um, and because you haven't got the prerequisite stamina and endurance and all the other things we talked about in place, an aerobic base, in place to be able to maintain that. 
like you said, the adaptions haven't occurred. You're loading up too quickly. Um, and that's when your body's like, yeah, this is great. I've got some intensity that's different to normal. I can adapt to this, but I'm not actually strong enough once I get back to homeostasis. Yeah, I might have adapted, but I'm still not strong enough to continue doing this. You have to drop the volume again and then build back up to that testing standard and you'll get a little bit stronger again. And that's what wave loading and step loading is. Yeah. And that's on the assumption that they can actually make it back to homeostasis in the first place. <laughs> yeah, which this person isn't. <laughs> I think that's, um, that's, again, one of the con- misconceptions of uh, homeostasis is that and allostasis it's not just your ability's body to make an excursion or cells ability to make an excursion away from its kind of datum point it's also the ability to come back by your recovery that is actually a better marker of your fitness um i've t- talked to a guy extensively about who's passed and his approach to um training and he um he, he said that he wasn't the fittest on the course, but he noticed that his readiness and his alertness at the start of every um, tab and ruck was exponentially higher than a lot of other people's, um, purely because his recovery was so fast. Um, he'd done a lot of uh, heart rate training and aerobic base training. Um, his recovery was extremely fast. So he might not finish... Uh, in the top five on the first phase of the hills phase or in the first hills phase um, but by the time he got through to the end of the jungle like he's he's finishing top with his peers he's in the top three or four um, out of a group of 50 so he's he's continued to get better because of his um, ability to recover um, yeah interestingly I've just got a message off the client and uh, they said they bought some uh, noise cancelling headphones and an eye mask and they got eight hours of sleep last night brilliant awesome. so <laughs> there we go some simple some simple changes can make a huge difference and I'd imagine that person is going to feel great today um, they're still not allowed to train though <laughs> yeah um, so we've got to improve the client's ability to recover because that's not what that's what they're not able to do at the moment and that's the key marker um, is it's not necessarily the person that finishes first that gets selected by these um, uh, organisations. It's the person that's just able to keep going with no matter what is thrown at them. It's that person that they're looking for, enduring, strong, robust and resilient. And at the present, this client isn't that. They're lasting four weeks and then they're falling to pieces. Um, and that's lucky. That's lucky that that doesn't happen, happen earlier. With the onset of stress and you've got your peers around you and you've got the unknown and unknowable around you um, weather conditions all these things add up um, and increase the level of intensity in, to a, in a lot of cases something that you can't replicate um, and many sports teams spend millions trying to um, for instance I know the 2003 Rugby World Cup team um, in the days leading up to the finals um, they had Johnny Wilkinson, like full block in this in a stadium, full blast speaker system playing crowds with the team around him jeering him and all this sort of stuff. Whilst he had to take a uh, um, like a really hard uh, penalty kick or a drop kick 
and so on. He, they were trying to replicate what might be going on in the game. Um, especially for a lot of cases, these guys are trained on their own. And they don't have the ability to replicate that. But what isn't replicated, especially in that Johnny Wilkins thing, is the, like, the accumulated fatigue from the game. Yeah. And that's, like, well, I think what a lot of people don't take into account when they probably train for a selection process is the accumulated fatigue that they experience by four weeks of walking loaded through hills. Like, the accumulated level of fatigue you have is going to be so high. Yes, by the, at the start of it, you were doing fantastic. You were smashing all the everyone else on the course by minutes but if, if you can't recover from that accumulated fatigue by the end you will really suffer yeah. so if you can just stay in the middle recover really well by the end of it accumulated level of fatigue that everyone else experience you experience it it's it's less because you've recovered better then you're you're going to be hitting very consistent times that is more important than doing really well and dropping off yeah. exactly yeah, it's the, it's the freight train and Ferrari analogy, isn't it? Um, mm. You've got to be able to chug along and recover. Um, pack horse and race horse. Um, chug along and recover really quickly and to be able to go again the next day. Um, so yeah, in terms of... Um, I had a point I was going to talk about, but I can't actually remember. Um, so this person's got five, six months to get to a point um, where they're in the top percentages of passes on, on the aptitude phase and then pass selection. Um, at the moment, they're chronically overtraining. They've got extensive training history. Um, we talked about some of the lifestyle factors and some of the testing standards that we might, or assessment standards that we might go into um, and a little bit into how we might uh, train this person going forwards. We talked about, obviously this guy is already doing high volume stuff. Now we know that in a periodized program, when we get six months out, we're kind of, we're on the like beginnings of entering this competition phase. Um, and Stefan probably had to talk about this quite well, is that the volume doesn't need to be that high. We're now trying to elicit what you've got and then bring it to the forefront. It's, it's within you, we just can't see it yet. We've got to try and pull it out of you how obviously considering all the things that we talked about Stefan how might you go about doing that for this client good question uh, so it's, it's hard to say without seeing their journey and like how well they've responded to the training to that point that makes sense yeah. um, but like you said, the way you do it is by reducing overall training volume. So condensing, like, let's say they're doing a six-day training week, condensing that into three days, but increasing the intensity of the activity across those three days. So whilst they might not be lifting as much load when they're training five days a week, they're now going to be lifting, let's say, let's take their bench press, they're going to be adding, like, 10 15 kilos to that on that session and those sets and repetitions so they're going to have a smaller number of of sets and reps but they're going to be lifting uh, a greater amount of weight to be able to increase that intensity uh, and it'd be same for all of their absolute strength activities whether that's a deadlift front squat back squat you name it um and in terms of aerobic endurance work same so rather than doing 
let's say 20 miles no there'd be more than that let's say they're doing 60 miles a week uh long and slow you'll be reducing that to doing 25 to 30 miles a week but you'd be trying to really increase the intensity of that so you'd be trying to shorten down those times uh to really elicit all that groundwork that you've been done uh, by spiking it with some intensity um, but like i said it's really impossible to say what you would do with them because you don't know how they would have adapted with the specific elements of fitness at that point but as a rule of thumb it would be exactly that so just condensing volume and spiking intensity it's lee you mentioned like you're looking to elicit what they've got after 12 months of overtraining why have they got <laughs> exactly this is what the... they got what have they got left to elicit this, this is the tough part. They, they potentially already bought out all the attributes that they can. Um, and like Stefan said, we've got to, we have to reduce the volume just to give them a chance to try and recover for the past 12 months. So we've kind of got to go through a, um, like a mini transition phase of some sort. Um, like this, this client's not making it easy for us, put it that way. Uh, <laughs> they've not given us much time. But, so we've got to kind of go through this mini transition phase, trying to let them recover from what they've got and then put them back into a competition phase. Um, so we've got to drop the volume enough whilst maintaining the intensity to allow them to recover, but not to see any uh, detriment to their performance. And we're not necessarily going to, like you would with a normal transition phase, then go in, back into the accumulation phase where it's lower intensity, relatively low volume or higher volume, and we're just building again. You know, we, we're doing transition phase, jumping straight back into a competition phase and then trying to um, get this person to pass one of the most arduous tests in the world. Um, and arguably one of the most arduous tests in the world and events in the world. Um, it's not many things that are even like Olympic level don't do this sort of stuff even um uh, what's the word extreme endurance athletes don't do this <laughs> sort of type of training so um you can understand the, the conundrum and the challenge that we've got ahead of us but yeah reducing volume and increasing intensity is trying to bring out the, the the physiological capabilities of this client um, it's going to be challenging um yeah my thinking was to um like you said, do what we've just said. Um, using you like because because of the pandemic and whatnot, they haven't got access to a gym anymore. They've got access to some heavy kettlebells, so it's just a bit more structured uh, strength endurance, strength and strength endurance work. Um, and then with the uh, aerobic endurance, it's just to give them a break from it because um, they've already been doing the intensity phase. Um, they. At a slower pace, they listened to, uh, to my advice from a while ago. Um, they've done some of the intervals just at a slower pace. Um, so they've been doing some one-mile intervals, getting up to about 10 miles, I think it is, with some weighted uh, weight uh, on the back um, at a slow pace. But still, the, in the relative intensity is still going to be higher. So my thinking is to give them just a break from it for two months. Let's try and accumulate some good strength adaptions. Um, get them healthy again and then start the rucking phase again um, and in that we will try to again elicit the uh, physical physiological adaptions that we've hopefully given them through the recovery phase it's probably a better better way to term it is we've got to put them into recovery phase 
we've got to rehab them for a little bit. Yeah, because you said they're an addict, right? It sounds like they're an addict to training and an addict to caffeine, yeah. so... Exactly, and partly because of what's going on at the moment, when the time of recording this, um, they, they don't have anything else to do. Like, so the natural inclination for someone who is a bit of a type A personality driven and um, what you might call it a bit of a go-getter is to go and prepare for the thing that they want to do and that is for this person fitness training um, so it's uh, yeah it's a tough one I think just just giving them a bit of structure a bit of time to recover should see this person through um, they've got a strong enough mentality um, so again we, we'll do what we can <laughs> and hope for the best um, in terms of the nutrition, we haven't talked talk much about that. Um, unless there's anything else, guys, you think that we should add to the, um, the training well, side of things. It just sounds, sounds backwards, isn't it? This person wants to get better. So what are they going to do? Are they going to sleep more and train less? Mm, yeah. They're going to get better from it. So less it's, really... it, sounds, it sounds backwards, but it's actually the most forward, the easiest way forward is to do less and sleep more. Yeah. My, one of my actual... Um, concerns was putting them through some assessments like because we need some data we need some relevant data to especially for the uh, rucking or tabbing whatever you want to call it um, and we we ideally need to see how fast can they do a 12 can they even get through a 12 miler can they get through an 18 miler and with the clients that I've already got um, I've put them through those tests months ago we go, okay, here's where we are. We know that without a specific competition phase and a specific intensity phase, you can you can already hit like uh, 10 to 15 minutes above above the above the ideal time. So they, instead of a 215, they're hitting a 230. Okay, here's where we are. So with a specific build, and I've already put some of them through a. Um, uh, a kind of a miniature peak to practice to see how they would adapt. Like eight months out, okay, well, I've got to put, we've done enough accumulation, let's elicit some of this now, put a, um, a training phase in place so that we can practice and see if it works. So that when we actually get to the actual um, competition phase, we know that that method works for them as opposed to just hoping for the best. And 15 minutes isn't going to be much over the course of uh, 12 miles. Like They're going to be able to make that up. Um, uh, for anyone that's watched my Instagram post, like we've had some huge increases off of like a short one-month phase for some of the clients. Um, I think 29 minutes was, was one of them off of, uh, off of a, a one-month specific phase, practice phase. So they're already hitting the time. So when we get towards the specific phase, we know we're going to be far above that um, we're going to be well past it but for this client we don't know um, so my thinking was okay let's give them a chance to recover then test them and go okay or do it now whilst they're kind of in a, in a state of semi-recovery um, when they know that they're overtraining give them a week or two and then test them as early as possible what would you, what would you guys do with that what would be your initial um, instincts because there's no book on this <laughs> Um, my instinct would be to get them back to baseline before then getting them to go away from homeostasis again. Because <laughs> at the minute, you don't know what homeostasis looks like for this person. You don't know what normal is. 
Um, so until you get them to that point, I think if you just add more and more allostatic load, you're just going to put them further and further into a hole, so they're going to be further away from reaching their objective. And you've got time against you on this one, so I don't envy you. Um, so there will be a point where you just have to buy. I'm going to be dragging you guys into this as well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, there, there will be a time where you're just going to have to bite the bullet and get them to, to do it uh, because reality is they're probably not going to be at their best every day during this hills phase. Um, so maybe having them a little bit fatigued to do it would be a good thing. It would be a truer indication, but it can't be too fatigued, if that makes sense. Like They have to have some kind of recovery, like some kind of standard of fitness before applying a substantial load to that otherwise you're just going to get another injury or they're going to get ill or they're going to further their gi intestinal problems yeah um so yeah that I'd, I'd be inclined to do the same just let them recover and then maybe in a week two weeks get them to go for it and get a baseline test because we can't do much of them right now anyway we're going to be dropping the volume anyway so why not give them a good dose of intensity and then allow them to recover from it okay we're going to give you 10 days of really really low volume um training just to keep you moving and then we're going to spike the intensity with a test and then we're going to let you recover again um like i personally I, like now we talk about it a little bit more and we flesh out the ideas i don't see that as a it's a bad point a bad way of doing it because if we go straight into training and then we test them too late and, but they I'll kind of backtrack a little bit. They're going to have, we're going to be doing low volume anyway. They're going to have to recover. So uh, why not really dial the volume back, bring it really polar, volume right down um, at the bottom, but the intensity right up with, a, with one test to give us a rough, that's probably the most specific test we have to give us at least one working data point um, and then let them recover from it and utilize it as a training session. Um, I, like now we flesh it out and talk about it. I don't see why that wouldn't be a, a viable option for us and anyone else who's in the same position because there's there's a ton of people I guarantee it um, that are in this position um, especially with the pandemic going on maybe their course has been cancelled whatever um, that are, we're ready to go and now like okay what do I do <laughs> I can't keep training at this level you have to bring it back so for anyone that is in that position um, doesn't know what to do give us a call get a coach um because if, if you're if you're asking that question you're already behind um so give us a call uh, <laughs> or a, a drop us a message via email um info at base.training and we can provide you with a coach um but yeah you're going to have to dial it back now and go back into this kind of mini build phase and then go through these a macro cycle but in in six months' time, as opposed to a year, as what it usually is. Um, so you just take kind of taking a month off each one. Uh, so two months of building, two months of kind of uh, high intensity, high volume, two months of competition, um, and then you'll be ready to go again and recovered. And you'll probably be at a higher level than you are now, which is the interesting point. So the main point is we're going to have to reduce volume for this client. Um, and increase intensity and let them recover from it um, over this next few months now. Um, that's the biggest thing, is try and get them to just recover. <laughs> biggest wins are going to be made in their lifestyle. Uh, we haven't talked too much about nutrition. 
Um, but what this, what I've already recommended to this client is that uh, they weren't eating enough carbohydrates. I said to them, okay, let's have a refeed um, over the next uh, four days. I want you to be having like a minimum of kind of 100 grams of uncooked white rice with each meal. Um, let's kind of replore, uh, replenish some of the glycogen stores um, and just yeah, replenish them with some vitamins and minerals and eat a ton over the next few days and see how you feel. Because it could be that they're just not fueling right. Their training might be spot on, but they're just not fueling right. And then this is where I start most. Okay, let's drink a load of water. Let's try and sleep a ton. Let's completely deload for a couple of days and let's um, replenish your energy stores. Um, would you guys agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Except that it's that fine line between are they overtraining and under recovering? You might find that if they start sleeping better and slightly change their nutrition well all of a sudden they feel a lot better and they don't feel like they're overtraining they are recovering from the amount of intensity and volume that they're doing it's, it's hard it's like juggling that isn't it to play with all the pieces until you find the right kind of rhythm and a balance of each one yeah but yeah I, it, overall when you first mentioned about this guy it did all seem lifestyle nutrition based where the issues were arising. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely like, not the wrong place to start. Yeah. I think it's just, it's like, like you said, we're trying to just pick off low hanging fruit um, and see what, see what the outcome is. Um, Cause it might, like I said, they might, their training might be at the right level for them. Right. This guy's got, like I said, he's got an extensive training history. He understands a lot of the basic concept concepts, um, but it's hard to do it for yourself. Like that's why you don't see any athletes going to the Olympics without a coach. I, I, I can't. I can't. I don't. Has that ever happened? <laughs> like even at the gladiator days, they had someone training them. Like, um, not many people are getting to the Olympics these days without a coach. Um, giving them specific stuff to do. You could even say, who was, was it a, an African guy or a Fijian guy or something like that, Pacific Islander that done the javelin and taught himself off YouTube and like broke the world record. He's still got a coach, but it's just not, it's a, it's YouTube is his coach. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so if, if you're doing it without a coach, then great effort, applaud you, but there's, there's a massive benefit to having one. Um, but yeah, nutrition, Deload of training plus a refeed is was the first place to start. Where would you be thinking in terms of ongoing nutrition? Um, Based on what you know about this client. So again, it depends on how they respond to what you give them. Uh, so if they start to respond positively to a higher amount of carbs, then you know you need to maintain a higher carbohydrate content. Um, but if they're still being a little bit fatigued, then potentially protein is the issue and they're not getting enough to rebuild and repair muscle structure and tissue. So uh, have a look at that. Um, uh, alternatively, it could be fats. If like they're sleeping more, but they're still not feeling recovered, it's probably because they haven't got enough fat in their system because fat, as we know, is responsible for uh, building up our um, our anabolic hormones such as testosterone and estrogen they're responsible for producing those steroid hormones sorry um so 
having a look at their fat consumption and you just got it's a constantly evolving process like i said there's no there's no map for it it's not it's never linear it's never a straight line from a to b it's always we go to a to z to h to j back to b then then to x then y then back to c it's it's very hard and everyone's different everyone's an individual so we have to look at them how they respond to the stimulus that you give them whether that's lifestyle nutrition or movement based and just consistently reevaluate and re-educate and just got to respond to what you're seeing in front of you and this is where that testing regular testing is so important as well yeah yeah and like what you said is is <laughs> it's, it's great confirmation for me because it's exactly what i've done um <laughs> it makes it feel good so this person's 83 kilo body weight um so in terms of their activity levels we're probably looking for 18 to- or if in pounds that 18 times that in calories so uh, that's, i can't remember what that is 83 times 2.2 so it's like 180 pounds um times 18 which equals out to about 3200 and that's kind of their rough calorie guideline um, and this person was wasn't counting the calories but they were splitting their calories roughly 50 percent carbs 30 percent protein 20 percent fats and based on their lifestyle issues, um, I agreed with the, we went for a 3,200 to 3,400 calorie guideline, um, 10% margin, about 10% margin of error in there, because this isn't an exact science. 50%-ish of carbs, um, again, ideally coming from um, like white rice, potato, white potatoes, sweet potatoes, um, stuff that's gonna go sh- like be more, uh, it's, it's going to go straight into the muscles as opposed towards the liver where kind of sugars and fruits and things do. Um, with higher fats, so about 30% fats, where they were previously having 20%, so we swapped it around, and 20% protein. Um, yeah, this is a start, start point, uh, but we're most likely going to adjust this as we go forward. It might turn out to like a 25% fats, um, 25% protein, we'll see. But the carbs are going to have to be high because uh, this person is struggling with energy balance. Um, we need to give them enough energy so they don't have to rely on as much caffeine. Um, and cortisol addiction and adrenaline addiction drives people towards sugar. Um, so we're going to have to deal with that. Um, this person is pretty good with their nutrition, luckily. It's one of their strongest, strongest areas. Um, yeah, I like what you said about the pro- we we basically got to assess their mac- their training needs and match with their macronutrient needs, haven't we? Yeah. Cool. Cool. Evaluating. <laughs> You've got your work cut out of you, really. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it'll, yeah, it'll be interesting. It's going to be an interesting one. I think like we've improved recovery with a big refeed, um, with a drop in volume and maintenance and a bit more structure to their program and increase the ability to increase their intensity, but not just increase their intensity, increase their ability to become, firstly express it, because they weren't expressing it before, but now to recover from it. So they're gonna get true doses of uh, intensity now, um, as opposed to volume masquerading as intensity, Um, because that's what generally happens with chronic overtrainers. They think it's intense because it feels hard, but actually, it's it's a it's a volume and endurance uh, thing that you're doing so you're not actually getting any better 
Um, so we can manipulate that, and I think, fingers crossed, we should see some good improvements with the client um, in a relatively short space of time. Like I said, just got a message off them, um, and after three days of no training and a refeed, they slept eight out with some tips on like sleep hygiene. They slept eight hours. Like the, the benefit that that's going to have for that client is astronomical, huge, huge. Um, keep that going for a couple of days before we're getting back into the training. Um, next week, um, or the first week of actual training is going to be probably three, three maybe four sessions. Um, very low volume, relatively higher intensity. Um, to try and maintain some of the training adaptions that they already have. Um, probably do that for two weeks, um, test them in the ruck, give them another two weeks recovery, and then we can start maybe a month of accumulation and then around uh, four months out from their uh, actual, which isn't ideal, would have preferred it to be like six months of rucking um, build. Around four and a half-ish months, we'll start doing a, a build of um, tabbing. Um, and higher intensity strength work and strength endurance work but just managing their volume and training intensity so with those points on paper hopefully we'll be able to get well this client through the process because um, they're determined they did they deserve to to get where they want to be um they just need a bit of guidance so if if you are a person who this resonates with and you're listening to this and I've been through it when I was in the military. <laughs> I, I was definitely overtraining without a doubt. Um, and I could, it was only when I'd, I'd go on exercise for two weeks, I wouldn't work able to train. I'd come back, dose a load of intensity, and I'd PB <laughs> in my mile and a half run. But I wasn't uh, inclined fitness wise enough to, to recognize that. So if, you, if these points that we talked about ring a bell, then look, it's time to get a coach, um, especially if you're six months out of it, out of the selection processes. You're doing yourself a disservice um, by setting yourself up for potential failure. Um, that might not be the case, but um, why why take the chance? Uh, this is an extremely arduous course. No one wants to be doing it twice. <laughs> um, getting a fail, like you hear of people getting failed like at the end of the jungle. Um, <laughs> that'd be devastating all that torment that you go through and physical um, testing not what one you want to be happening so give yourself the best chances give yourself a little bit of structure um, get yourself a coach um, follow a follow some structure for fuck's sake <laughs> and you'll, you'll help yourself out a lot and you put yourself in the best position um, and you won't come away regretting anything um yeah, any points to add, guys? Not at all. <laughs> and again, if, <laughs> we've done a series of these. If you're interested in the more um, special forces specific ones, we've done two with stoic conditioning, um, how to pass SS, SS selection part one and two, so you can go back and listen to those. Super informative. Um, and uh, you can also re-listen to this podcast and go back to our definitions of tier one and uh, tier three and tier two um, tactical clients. And that'll give you some 
ideas as to where you, the starting points might be for you if you're considering this two or three years out. Um, but yeah, get in touch, contact us. Um, all you need to do is go onto the website, go onto the uh, Get Started page, click on one of our pictures. And so if you've liked something that we've said, click on one of our pictures and it will take you straight to our booking calendar for free consultation. Um, and we'll talk through your needs and requirements and see whether we can actually help. If you're a month out, we probably can't help you. Um, <laughs> good luck. Um, but if you're two years out, even six months out, we can still do something for you. Um, so yeah, or email us, uh, just stick our name down at base.training and we will reply to you with uh, some times to have a chat and get started if needed. Yeah, sweet. Other than that, good luck with your course selection processes um, and hopefully we might hear from you soon. Peace out.